going deep. I feel like Halo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones of a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. There ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you so much, Capital. It is going deep, and this is an NFL draft edition. And listen, I am a lover of drafts. Fantasy drafts, certainly. Really love to compete in those, and I do way too much prep. But I love watching and consuming drafts of all sports. I am deep in mock drafts of the MLS Super Draft. Yeah, oh, I love that right back coming out of Notre Dame. Definitely want to see him go high in the first round. That's me. I I love it because... It's a marriage of the worlds that I really like. One, reality TV, because there is a real aspect to seeing someone about to secure the bag. Their hard work, dedication, their family's hard work and dedication realized in a moment where you go from prospect to I woke up in a new Bugatti and I am in a different tax bracket. Or you see someone sitting there watching other people picked before them seeing millions of dollars come off the board. There's nothing else like that in life. Like you are applying for a job. You're on glass door looking at what the starting salary would be. You're messaging people on LinkedIn, trying to get advice. You go through rounds of interviews, get feedback. You're not sitting in a ballroom with all the other applicants of that job, seeing how they're interacting, seeing them get placed at the organization before you. So from a human interaction and interpersonal communication aspect of it, I find it fascinating. But I also love to dig into and pour into football tape, evaluating players, looking for comps, seeing how their skills are going to transfer to a new league. A new league, let's remember, when we talk about college football, TNFL, has legit new rules. The rules are different. The sport and the way the plays are called or the offenses and defenses is different. Love that aspect of it as well. But I also love the NFL. I love watching the league, and I love seeing teams get better and address needs via the draft. And so it is perfect marriage for me so much so that as a consumer of it, I bounce around the coverage. Yeah. I'm that guy. I will watch one pick on ESPN. Then I'll flip and I'll watch another pick on the NFL network. Then I'll flip and I'll watch another pick on ABC, so on and so forth for legit three days. That's me. So we are going all in on all things draft. And you know, a while back I thought, man, this, Jeff doesn't have this much juice. Like, this isn't the Reggie Bush year or the Jamarcus Russell year. But as we get closer, there are some fascinating aspects to this draft. One, the QBs. Who will go first? What order will they go? We have four to five QBs who could go in the first round and multiple choice. No idea what order they're going to go in. Normally, when we get this close to the draft, we know the first pick. We know the first couple picks, especially when we're talking about QBs, especially when a team traded up for that position. We still have no idea, although there is betting money coming in on Will Levis. I I can't imagine that he would go first overall, but I never thought Baker Mayfield was going to go first overall. So who knows? I could talk myself into Bryce Young. He has the best tape and does some like Mahomesian things. It's not Mahomes, but you, you get the point. But he also would be the smallest QB arguably to ever start in the NFL. The first QB in over 10 years, under 200 pounds of the league. He weighed in at 204 at the combine at 510, uh, but he played at Alabama at around 190. He says, listen, I've been this size my whole life, which I get is true. Actually, it's not true because you weren't that size when you were a baby, so not your whole life. You were smaller than everyone else for your whole life. I get that's true, but you know what you haven't done for your whole life? Play in the NFL. Like, yes, the SEC is really difficult, but 
the NFL is playing Georgia, their defense, every week. So I worry about his size because Russell Wilson, a small QB who of late has struggled to stay healthy, he's 220 pounds. He's a good 15, 16 more pounds than you at your heaviest. And Tua, who is much bigger than you, has had some health concerns coming from the same school and same offense. So I like Bryce Young. Don't know if I'd like him enough to pick him first and give him a lot of money. But then on the flip side, he is the player for me with the highest ceiling outside of Anthony Richardson, who is a legit freak. This is why it's all fascinating. This is why I need someone to break down these QBs, the risk capital, the potential investment, and how things might shake out so that I can watch informed. And hopefully you can as well. So we're going to call in someone who is informed, who's breaking down this tape, talking to coaches, and we'll be broadcasting throughout the next couple days for CBS Sports and Sportsline, their betting arm. That's Emery Hunt. Like me, former player of the game, former running back. He was much better than I, and he is a much better broadcaster than I. But he will lend his talents to us as we listen to and learn from and go deep on all things NFL draft and all of these confusing quarterbacks with Emery Hunt of CBS Sports. So, Emery, I love uh, talking to you because we're part of the community. Former running backs, uh, we get to... Uh, share stories, but also lament the fact that no longer are, are running backs the premier position. People talking about drafts, they're talking about one position, and that's quarterbacks, especially this year, especially at the top of the draft. I don't remember a draft where, so close to it, there was so much conversation as to who might go where. The order is uncertain. Um, what is your read on the fact that we have various insiders saying very different things on what's going to happen to QBs at the top of the draft. The draft is a flat circle, man. And what what I mean by that is if we just rewind back to 2017, it's the same conversation when the top quarterbacks at the time were Mahomes, Watson, and Deshaun Kaiser. All of a sudden you get Mitch Trubisky thrown into the mix about, well, what about him? He may be the one that the NFL scouts like more. He may go number one. Who knows, right? Right. Watson and Mahomes may not be ready to play. Um, and you fast forward to this year with a clear-cut top three quarterbacks are Richardson, Young, and Stroud. And here's Will Levis thrown in the mix. And it's like, oh, Will Levis may go number one. When the tape shows you nothing about Will Levis is worthy of a number one pick or first-round pick, the same with Mitch Trubisky. In fact, if you go back to... Um, 2017, Trubisky got outplayed and beat in a head-to-head matchup versus Gerard Evans, who just signed with the European League of Football. He didn't even get a chance in the NFL. Why are we not talking about Stetson Bennett over a Will Levis if the people knock Stetson Bennett's size when we may have potentially a guy that's 5'10 go number one, but this 5'10 is different than this 5'10. Like So all of this just reminds me of 2017 and I'm excited to see it play out because someone's going to take Levis. And it's not a knock against Levis. I don't seem like I'm bashing the dude, but somebody's going to take him, and they're going to be sitting back from afar like, wow, why didn't we take Richardson, Stroud, or Young when they were clear-cut the better options? Well, Will Levis right now, uh, the betting favorite to go second uh, in terms of the quarterbacks coming off the board. I, I think Bryce Young we assume would be the clear number one, came into the year as the clear number one, uh, has expected to be a a number one potential pick since he was at high school, a matter of day. But uh, there's only this issue we talk about size. He is, you know, on his best day, which is combine day, 204, played at 190, uh, 5'10". There isn't a huge sample size of QBs being able to play at that level at that size oh and by the way the QB that still bigger than him but from his school and Tua is struggling to stay healthy in the league what do you make of what happens with him at the top of the draft especially given the fact that Carolina went up to that position um, and you know their quarterback and now head coach 
uh, is not a guy who profiles as someone who wants a small quarterback. Bingo. And because they, and everybody in that room, from McCown to Frank Wright to Jim Caldwell, profiles from how they played and also who they have worked with, profile C.J. Stroud, right? And if I'm not mistaken, they made that move up after Ohio State's pro day, which kind of, you know, leads you to believe, okay, they know who they want to go get. They don't want to leave it a chance. They're going to get Stroud. Now, to your point about Bryce Young, it's fascinating when you think about it because Bryce Young also had gotten injured a, a bit, you know, during this past season. Um, and if, you know, and there's no two short quarterbacks or small quarterbacks are the same because it's all about how you run. And, and you know this as a running back, there's guys that are able to evade and there's guys that are not able to evade. And those guys that are not tend to get banged up a little bit more than those who have the wiggle and ability to avoid that contact. So for quarterbacks, it's about how you run. You know, there's a difference in between running reckless or running under control. Wilson runs under control. Vic ran reckless. You know, those are the type of things you look at. And I feel like Bryce Young, because of his spastic style, tends to play a little bit reckless with his body. Uh, juxtaposed to someone that also runs, like a Lamar Jackson. We don't see Lamar Jackson take direct shots, and he knows how to get out of bounds and knows when and where to take the, a certain type of hit. So for Young, you have to worry about, hey, man, can you play more under control? Can you, you know, start to slide a little bit more? Can you be more fluty as opposed to, you know, trying to get yourself in a situation where you can't get down? I feel like Will Levis also runs reckless. And so when, you, when you're running reckless, it, it puts you in a bind to where, okay, can we depend on him to be healthy for a full 17-game season? And that's the question. Is And I feel like it's not necessarily due to his size, but more so due to how he plays. And he's going to have to alter that um, in order to survive. We saw Deshaun Watson be a little bit reckless with his body too, uh, Clemson and also in Houston. So we'll, we'll see. Um, but I think he has to really understand how he plays and how he can sustain success over the long haul that's going to change. He's going to have to change how he plays the game uh, just from a little bit uh, from how he you know runs and how reckless he tends to be. So he checks out totally in terms of the intangibles, even though there's a question about the physical tangibles. Uh, Nick Saban can't stop talking uh, positively about the dude, and Nick Saban loves to say negative things about everybody. Uh, you know, he's scored a S2 uh, cognitive test 98, which was extremely high. Now, I don't want to be a hypocrite because whenever I hear about a standardized test, I feel a type of way. I didn't love the wonderlick and the leaking of those scores. And I always question, well, who was this standardized test made for and who was it made by? However, I do like the fact that my boy scored a 98. When you hear these tests leak and the scores leak, your thought is what? History is is so fast. I love history because it gives us all the seeds to the future. So when I see, I'm like you, when I see these standardized tests, automatically I think eugenics, automatically I think all kind of stuff that wasn't, that's always tailor-made to make certain players or people look like they're not as smart as others. So when I see something that's supposed to be pegged as cognitive ability and I see Will Levis high on the list, I'm like, this is a BS test. You know, because you watch him play, he's consistently making dumb decisions. So clearly, this is not accurate. Throw this test out the window. And I feel like we're getting, like, everyone wants to, they say a sucker is born every minute, right? Um, and everybody wants to feel like they can crack the code. But at the end of the day, we're playing football. And who can play football? And when you're watching Bryce Young play, you think about that Auburn game in 21 where they're backed up on their own three-yard line and they go 90-plus yards down the field to push, push the game into overtime and then they ultimately win that game against Auburn. You watch him consistently fight through adversity time and time again and find a way to have success. The Texas game this year was another one where Texas had those dudes beat. Now, granted, Texas had a lot of injuries to the, you know, yours and all got a, you know, that, that kind of altered that game. But Bryson didn't play his best, but he played good enough when they needed him to to overcome. So I'm still focused on the football, you know, and because all this other stuff is going to be people try to, you know, oh, we can crack the code on how cognitive, like you imagine taking a, somebody basing your draft status off a cognitive test that has nothing to do with what happens out there on the field when dudes weighing 300 plus pounds are chasing you 
and you have to make unless that test involves that, then I'm all for it. But if if it involves you playing a video game um, where you know you're not gonna get hit, know you're not gonna have deal with pressure, know you're not gonna throw make a bad decision, take that test and put it in file 13 and put file 13 in the ocean somewhere. Well, it, it, a guy who has the tape and who checks all the boxes, whether you're evaluating QB in 2023 or 2003, CJ Stroud. And his prototypical size played in a pro offense, but he gave us a, a little new wrinkle in the college football playoff where he showed us the elusiveness that maybe people wanted from him. It, was he was he holding back, or is, is it a little bit of the okey-doke where he knew he had to put some things on film, uh, but that truly isn't the player uh, that he is. Where are you on on his evaluation? It, again, I love history it, because if he doesn't, if he is out there scrambling around running, they'll they'll say, "Oh, he's just a running quarterback." So I need to. He needs to be better winning from the pocket. So now that I win from the pocket consistently, he's not the athlete that he he can't move. You know, you have to be able to run. So it's like, wait, you can't have it both ways. Like, which one is it? Like, do you want me to run or do you want me to play from the pocket? Because when I do one, you see I can't do the other, and you knock me for that. But when I do the other, you knock me for not doing this, which you knocked everybody for. So I think he just kind of showed he's always been a good athlete. I think that's mostly what we see nowadays, period. Um, the quarterback position is an athlete because of how the high school game is played, you know, and how we see stuff start to trickle up. So to assume a guy can't move is just a fool's errand because all these kids are playing multiple sports. They're they're able to show their athleticism. The QB run game is such an integral part to high school football. So we know these dudes are doing it at the high school level. He just didn't have to. But when he showed it was in his bag, then you saw everybody that doubted his athleticism just completely do a 180. Wow. Like as if he went out there and ran for a hundred yards. All he did was just move within the pocket and find some targets down the field. Like, and so it's like, how bad did y'all think this dude could move? So for me, it was, it, it's always funny to see like the, the, the discourse because people tell themselves all the time. So I was just fascinating to, to watch. So to me, CJ Stroud is, I think he's Troy Aikman plus I saw a, a comp of um, Jared golf plus. I could agree with that. Someone said maybe Sam Bradford plus all of those are fine. Cause I feel like all of those dudes have tremendous accuracy. Um, I think Stroud has a stronger arm than golf, obviously, but I feel like he is on par with Sam Bradford, who was also underrated athletically as well. Um, so I feel like Stroud fits the profile. Like you, like you touched out perfectly, whether you watching tape in 2023 or 2003, I think he's someone that fits with the league likes at the position. So Anthony Richardson could be Lamar Jackson or Cam Newton plus, which is saying something. Based off of his combine numbers, he profiles as the best athlete to ever play the position. But there are, you know, some concerns that he didn't fully maximize on that athleticism on tape. He is the player in this draft where the most times I watch film and I'm like, guy, what? But he also is the player in this draft who I could see someone taking and either looking like a genius in five years or an idiot in five years. What's your read on Richardson and where he might uh, end up going? I think folks focus on the 54% completion percentage a little bit too much and ignore the fact that this was his first full year of starting. Um, And last year he played this platoon weird system where he didn't know if he was going to when he was going to get in the game um and with emory jones and every time he was out there he's like why is this dude not starting over emory jones like clearly the offense moves better when he's in the game then you factor in the 54 percent in conjunction with what he was throwing to outside of ricky pearsall it's like how did you guys get to florida you know i've never seen so many drop passes by let alone guys from that program. Because if one thing you could just count on, Florida's going to have receivers. Not this year. Like, it was like, outside of Pearsall, it was like, bro, like, you guys are dropping everything. But for, you know, Richardson, so when you factor in the drops, throwaways, just to, you know, to, to save a down, and you realize he played really good football, and he's still growing, he's 20, this was his first full year starting. So what if I put him in a situation where he has better receivers, and we are able to, help him 
grow within the position because he has the plus one ability in the run game. We pair him with a, a great offensive line, a great run game, and good receivers. We could see an exponential growth as a rookie because he also has very good pocket mobility, pocket management, throws a beautiful deep ball, may have the best deep ball out of all the quarterbacks in terms of consistency and hitting the deep ball down the field. I feel like Indy would be the perfect spot for him. You have Jonathan Taylor, a very good offensive line, Alec Pierce, Michael Pittman Jr. at wide receiver, and Jelani Woods at tight end. To me, that's an ideal fit, along with uh, Shane Steichen, who worked with Jalen Hurts, and what they did with that offense. I feel like this is a similar spot for him. So if I'm the Colts, I hope Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud you know, go off the board and Arizona stays pat and takes a defensive player and Will Anderson or whoever. Therefore, they can get Anthony Richardson. I think people are underselling how good this dude is and what he brings to the table, both athletically and also as a passer. But can't you just see Jim Irsay wanting to stand up at the press conference with Will Levis? Like, can't you just see them holding the jersey beside each other? I, I, there are always scenarios where things happen where you just take a player off your draft board. want to get into uh, Jalen Carter with you in a bit. But when I heard that Will Levis eats bananas with the peel on and puts mayonnaise in his coffee, I'm taking it off my draft board. I don't care what the tape says. I don't care what the comps are. This is a character flaw. You might be a sociopath. When you heard that anecdotal detail, what did you think? Dan Campbell about to trade up and get him because that sounds like <laughs> Dan Campbell got it, right? <laughs> like, I'm with you, man. It's like, bro, like, you doing what? Bananas? All right, man, whatever. Like, whatever, bro. I, I know some people that bite orange peel and then, you know, like, whatever. You know, some people put orange peels in their drinks. Whatever. I'm willing to look past that. All right, I could I could say you just bugging out on that one. But the mayonnaise and the coffee, it was like, fam, that don't even match. Like, that's not even a... Those two condiments don't even go together. Like, so, yeah, off my board. But and here's the thing about Will Levis. Like, he's tough. He competes. He has a strong arm, good athlete. Uh, he's a physical player. You like that about him. He's going to compete. Uh, but the downside is he's reckless with his body, so he stays banged up, which we've seen. Um, his lower body mechanics are not what they need to be, which is why his placement is off, which leads to interceptions, whether they bounce off the receiver's hands because he's reaching back or they just go past the receiver and go right to the defensive back. And this is an older prospect. So he's played a lot of football. He started two years at, at Kentucky. Maybe he's at his ceiling. And you got to go back and wonder if this guy is potentially being talked about as a top five pick. He couldn't beat out Sean Clifford, who's talked about as being, you know, an undrafted guy. You have to wonder what's going on. Like, what's the disconnect? I just feel like the inconsistency for me is pushing him out of the first round. And I compared him to like a Daniel Jones or Carson Wentz type guy to where if you told me you got him in round three and you needed a starter or someone that has experienced and played a lot, kind of like Kenny Pickett, you know, I, I'm not as high on Kenny Pickett, you know, because I feel like he just played a lot of football and Pittsburgh had to panic because they lost Dwayne Haskins. I feel like if Dwayne Haskins was still alive, they wouldn't have panicked and picked a quarterback in the first round. I felt like he was going to be their guy. So they had to go with someone that had a lot of experience and they were so familiar with him in, in at Pitt. I feel the same thing about Levis. Like if you were, let's say if you're talking about, you know, the Raiders in round two or maybe the Vikings in round two, you know, someplace like that, that maybe Washington in round two, that makes a lot of sense to me. But for, I wish we, you know, everybody talks about, you see how they effectively done this for the running back position, right? They constantly say you can't take me to the first round to where, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to where they have reset the running back pace structure. They need to do that with these quarterbacks because there should be no reason why Daniel Jones is getting $40 million, right? Reset this. You don't have to draft or oh, you need a quarterback. No, you need a good one. Like, don't take mediocre players in round one. If you don't have to take Will Levis, if you feel like Will Levis is not a first-round pick, don't take him in the first round and keep the price down for these quarterbacks, and you won't be forced to pay Kirk Cousins a billion dollars or Daniel Jones, $40 million for throwing 15 touchdowns in our year of 2023, you know, out there on the football field. Well, it's fascinating. You know, there's some mocks that have four of the first five picks being QBs. There are some uh, mocks that have five QBs in the first round when you add uh, Hayden Hooker. I'm not really sure 
if I'm running a team, I don't say, why don't we just stink for another year and go take a look at Caleb Williams or Drake May from UNC uh, next year? What do you think ends up happening um, with the QBs in the first round? How early do you think they're going to go and how many do you think we're going to see? I think we'll see three going to top five, and I think we'll see four in the first round. I don't think Hinda Hooker makes it. And I know people talk about the fifth-year option. So you take him in the first round, and then at the end of his fifth-year option, he's 30. Like, you know, what are we doing here? And how much better do you think his ceiling is? His ceiling is probably the same as Will Levis, you know. And so he, and he's also coming off an injury. Granted, that isn't. we say it's an ACL uh, I think everybody has gotten burned by uh, Adrian Peterson's recovery and thinking that, oh, it's just an ACL. Like, bro, it's an ACL, man. Like, I've had two ACL surgeries, and it took me uh, two years to get back to, to normal. You know, so not everyone ACL is the same. And we're, you know, and we're talking about a quarterback that has some athleticism, and now you're talking about him not being, you know, you know coming back from this injury, and you're taking him in the first round. I'm like you. I'd rather take guys that are impactful in round one and then, you know, work from there thereafter, you know, more risk thereafter, second through seventh round. So if we are in a position where we're questioning whether or not we have a guy at quarterback, just increase the talent around the team. And if it doesn't work out and folks always say, well, just go get, you know, Caleb Williams or Drake may or, you know, whoever may be. And who knows? You know, there may be like four quarterbacks next year outside of those two that play extremely well. And now you have six quarterbacks in round one because what also people forget, you got to get to the number one or number two pick to get the guys, which means you essentially got to lose every game because we see it every year. Like, oh, this team is going oh just get this guy next year. You know, yeah, but they end up going four and 12, which is terrible. But. Now they're picking fourth because three other teams went for it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, dang, they, they suck too. So you really just got to make sure your team is tight. You trust your scouting department and trust that there's going to be more than two quarterbacks that's going to be good uh, next year. It, it worked first round grade worthy. And, and that's how you uh, operate your, your um, organization. Yeah, Houston Texans fans uh, know that well uh, as they are hoping – uh, to lose, and of course they found a way to mess that up uh, as well. You, you talked about that pay structure, and to me, the, the natural segue is Bijan Robinson and what happens with him and where he goes. The the New York Giants have essentially communicated how the league feels. To your point, they paid Daniel Jones. Uh, they they franchised the guy who made Daniel Jones, Daniel Jones, and Saquon Barkley. And so, you know, we have the essentially a referendum on, on what position deserves to get paid and what position matters. I get it. You know, more plays from the shotgun, uh, more committee uh, running backs, uh, passing on early downs. And when you have one of those QBs, uh, they, they're game changers. I, I, I get it. But it reminds me of Bobby Knight talking about uh, the NBA draft. And there was a conversation, oh, man, Hakeem is going to go one. You know, we, we need a center. We got to get Sam Bowie, but Jordan is right there. And Bobby Knight is like, well, play Jordan at center. And that's kind of how I feel about Bijan Robinson. You're like, yes, you're not supposed to take a running back in the first round. We get it because of the, there isn't really a huge discrepancy in, you know, what you're going to have to pay him at that slot and, you know, what the top of the market is. So it's not really great savings and, Shelf life of the career might be shorter, and the position is, you know, devalued because the Chiefs can go get Isaiah Pacheco in the seventh round. I get it. But those rules are for dumb people who can't watch film. This 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 guy is different. You, you're, you're getting receivers in the first round. Well, then play this man at receiver. And so I, 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 I think he has to be live for Philly at 10. There's no way he should get to Dallas at 26. And really, you know, if someone no longer has a first-round grade, they should just say, well, we, we got to trade up and get this guy. But I, I don't have faith that that's going to happen. What do you think happens with Bijan Robinson? I, I agree with you, man, wholeheartedly. Like, we're, I'm not passing on Barry Sanders to get Gerald Moore 
in se- in the round in seventh round. Like, no, I'm taking a dude that can score from 80. You know, because if you take a receiver in the first round, that also means you depend on your weak quarterback to get him the football to where he can be successful. All I gotta do is turn around, and hand this dude the ball. You know what I'm saying? And people talk about the pay structure. Like, wouldn't it make sense to take the back at their best, their most healthiest when they're fresh coming out of college in the first round? Because if you take them then, by year five, you can reassess if you want to extend them or go back and get another one, right, in the first round. So guys like Bijan, guys like Jameer Gibbs, they are difference makers. Difference makers go in round one. You take um, Adrian Peterson. You take Chris Johnson. You take uh, C.J. Spiller. You take these game breakers in round one. Now, granted, some of those guys went in round two, like C.J. 2K. No, I think he went in round one. So you take those guys, right? And, yeah, you could find other guys that could be productive. But I guarantee you, if you told somebody, I'll give you Adrian Peterson or Austin Eckler or, you know, uh, I'll give you Saquon Barkley or Isaiah Pacheco, you're going to take the first round back 10 times out of 10. So some people like to be dumb on purpose. And they could be dumb on purpose if you like, um, if you're Philly or Atlanta, potentially, Cincinnati. Don't let Cincinnati get Jameer Gibbs. Like, that's just cheating. Don't let Miami trade back into the first round somehow and get Bijan or Jameer Gibbs. That, to me, is just, like, those teams that that understand game breakers, get it. And that's what you need. Give me all the playmakers uh, and put them out there on the field, and let's see how you try to defend, and let's see how you try to scheme up to stop us. Well, you are right. Some people like to be dumb on purpose, uh, which is my natural segue to Jalen Carter, who... Listen, has some real off-the-field red flags in terms of, uh, you know, being involved in a, an accident, which he's been sentenced for, where, you know, tragically a teammate and another staffer, um, you know, lost their life, you know, but but also showing up at your combine, you know, out of shape, unable to finish the drills, you know, uh, reportedly late. It, he, for me, on, based off of talent, outside of Bijan, and he, he might be the, the best player in this draft. But yet, if you can't show up and show out for your job interview, how can I trust you with millions of dollars to make the right choice, whether it's in the facility or outside of the facility? What's your read on what his stock uh, ends up being? I'm like Jimmy Johnson in that regard. I'm probably good. I, I would probably be the worst head coach in history because as you're telling me all of these things i'm watching him versus oregon so i'm like i hear you but until you say something that's better than this oregon tape of him dominating these guards like i'm gonna take him bro like i'm sorry like, i'm taking him like so i feel like everything that talent helps you explain you know this talent helps you explain things away like jalen carter can come to practice a little bit out of shape, cannot finish a drill. But you as Mr. You know, six-round defensive tackle, you better be here bright and early. You better close the building down. You better open the building up because you're not doing the same thing this dude's doing in this Oregon game. So I, conspiracy theory, it, it theorist in me, feels like this was all set up by Philly because I was at the combine and D linemen were getting ready to talk. And we were on set CBS. We we're getting ready to talk to Will Anderson. So we're introducing ourselves, shaking hands, getting ready, you know, getting them mic'd up. And I've never seen this happen before. He, as he's getting acclimated to what we're about to do, the D linemen are starting to walk up to the podium and everybody in the crowd looks down at their phone at the same time. The producer behind the camera tells us, hey, look, look at your phone. We get the alert that Jalen, the whole news broke. So it's like, wow. As he, talk about timing, right? Then he gets whistled off and has to whisk off and has to go down to Georgia to take care of that business. I'm like, man, this is crazy. The last time I saw this happen was last year when the linebackers were supposed to speak and the, the news broke about Nicobe Dean's health. And what do the two things have in common? Philly. Philly took Jordan Davis. They took Nicobe Dean when he dropped. Philly's sitting there at 10. All we heard all, all season is Jalen Carter going one, two, or three, one of those. He can't get to Philly at 10. Now he gets to Philly at 10 because of this news. And so if this dude goes to Philly, 
I'm I, I I'm saying this is all put in by Howie Roseman. You know, excellent job of gamesmanship. Get everybody to dislike the player, have him drop to you. You take a chance on him. You sit there, you you know, you say, hey man, just shave all your facial hair off and look look contrite. You know, say, let me do the talking and we'll work on you, we'll get you in the program. And he goes up there and stars. And now you got all Georgia defense out there with two D tackles from Georgia that was elite in their linebacker. So I think this is all I think this is all gamesmanship by one team trying to drop his stock to where he can fall to where they're within striking distance. If this dude ends up with Philly, I know I know this was put in play at the combine. So Philly is fascinating for me in this draft because it's not often that you have the team that, quite frankly, was the best in the league for the majority of the regular season, uh, Super Bowl runner-up with two picks, 10 and 30 in the draft. And those picks are going to be valuable moving forward because they just went and paid their quarterback. So they have to strike gold uh, in the draft. What do you think they end up doing? Um, package them and, and make a move. They sit pat. Well, how do you see the draft uh, shaking out for the Eagles? They can go in a lot of different directions. People love to say running back. I I can agree with that wholeheartedly. But I also want to see what they can get out of uh, Rashad Penny. But you can't really depend on his health. But I love that about that. Also, because they've had they have a track record of really keeping the pipeline going, not at quarterback but at O-line and D-line. So I can see them go O-line, D-line with both of those picks, you know, but I can also see what them doing what you talked about, packaging up. If there's a specific player that they want, if you're Arizona, you want to bypass Will Anderson, fine, that's your prerogative. And you want to take 10 and 30 and come away with two first-round picks, I can see that happening. I can see Philly doing, Philly to me is the wild card in this first round because of those two picks. Because they have a deep and talented roster, there's not a lot of needs. So they can really stockpile good, you know, quality depth with two elite talents and first round picks. Um, but they also can move around and get specifically targeted players. I can see them going cornerback as well. You know, I can see them going a lot of different directions. So they truly, truly to me, hold the cars in the movement part of this draft. Well, the other team that could be real interesting is the Green Bay Packers because they got have some more draft capital with the trade of Aaron Rodgers. I wouldn't say that Aaron Rodgers. Uh, is dumb on purpose, although he he does, you know, subscribe to YouTube University. But I I would say, yeah, he's he's maybe a a habitual line stepper. But he goes to the Jets. Uh, You know, now people are talking about their Super Bowl chances. I'm not sure they're going to win their division, never mind uh, win a Super Bowl. But the Packers now have an opportunity, after having stability at the position, literally, for the entire time I've been watching football, since the 90s, uh, they need to put some talent around a young QB, and the Jets are in win-now mode. Talk to me, you know, before I let you go, what do you make of the move for both sides, and how, if at all, do you think the move impacts what we see uh, over the course of the next couple days during the draft? I love it for uh, Green Bay, man, because Brian uh, Gutekunst's way better than I would have been as a GM. I would have cut Aaron Rodgers like a couple years ago because I'm tired of hearing about you, man. Like, like, bro, like, get out my face, man. Like, I, like I'm, I'm sick of it. Like, you got to go. Like, I'm, like every, it's something every year with you. Like, you're holding us hostage. We don't have an owner. The team owns a team. You know, owns a team. The city owns a team. And here you are asking for God knows what. Do you want to play? You know, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to cut you, and that way you can go and make that decision, right? So it's a great move for Green Bay. For the Jets, it's like... Man, you know, he's 39 years old, doesn't evade pressure well, so you really have to hope your offensive line is excellent. And if a dude says he thought about retiring, he is already mentally retired, you know. And so he's just playing out the string, and it makes sense for him to be out there because you're going to give him $60 million. Like, I would, you know, unretire for $60 million. That sounds like a good reason to do it. Uh, But if you're Green Bay, what a great situation. You have a young quarterback that has been in your system for three years now that has the athleticism move, has a great arm, good young talent that he's been playing with on the in, in reserve because these guys are now, you know, they were working more with Jordan Love than they were with Aaron Rodgers. A lot of these reserve guys, you can go in the first round, you can get you a receiver, you can get you a tight end. You know what I'm saying? And what they want to do is probably more so along that philosophy change. They drafted a fullback a couple years ago, Josiah DeGora. They... They re-up, you know, running backs. They got two good running backs. Um, 
they could pound the football. They could run the ball, and they got to get better on defense and stopping them. We saw Detroit just, just run right through, you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin uh, in that last game of the season. So for me, I think Jordan Love is set up perfectly. Philosophy change that will help him out. They'll add probably a tight end or another wide receiver. Um, they'll get better defensively. And just the weight of an Aaron Rodgers out of Green Bay, it's like, whew, finally, let's go and play ball now. We ain't got to walk on eggshells. We can just really run what we want to run and not try to, you know, go and get the okay from Aaron Rodgers on every move we make. So I think this is great for Green Bay. And the Jets got to worry about the AFC. You could literally have 10 teams with 10-plus wins in the AFC and find yourself with a winning record out the playoffs. You got to worry about the Ravens, Browns, Bengals, Dolphins, Bills, Chargers, Broncos going to be better. Like, before we even get to the Jets, that's t- that's eight. Right there, you out the playoffs. And, and if you're the eight team in that list that I just ran through. So it's going to be tough, man. It certainly will be, but it will be fascinating, uh, as will the draft. We'll be watching your coverage throughout. Maybe we'll get some surprises. We always do. Someone falls. Someone get, goes early. A big trade, potentially D-hop on the move. But either way, thank you for getting us prepped for it, my man. Not a problem, man. Appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks so much to Emery. Hopefully, after hearing that conversation, you are now not dumb on purpose. You are smart for a reason. You're smart because you're listening to this, and you're smart because Emery gave you all of that great insight and knowledge. If you're listening to this, take some time to like, favorite, share, subscribe, and stay with us. Because after this quick break, we're going to go in on what the draft has become. Because 15, 20, 25 years ago, it would have been a reach to say the draft was going to be a traveling event that cities and municipalities bid on that thousands of people plan vacations around. But here we are. The draft is next level. And we're going to learn about that on Going Deep. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that you had the show. Thank you. That's right. More Going Deep for you right now. And a year ago, I was in Las Vegas at this time. Seeing up close and personal, one, how massive a sports town Las Vegas is and is becoming, but two, how massive the draft is. No word of a lie. It was like a Grey Cup, a Super Bowl, activations everywhere, parties and concerts everywhere, league brand sponsors everywhere, alumni, current players doing signings and video shoots and autograph sessions there were events throughout the week, and this was essentially, you can imagine it, a huge area just off the strip, just dedicated to the draft. Thousands and thousands of thousands of fans in uniform, in jerseys, in costume, drinking and partying and dancing and cheering, watching the draft on a screen. They packed their bags got on a flight, booked a hotel in a very expensive city, came out and showed out to watch the broadcast that they could have watched from their home. Yes, some people in the room got to see from a couple hundred yards away the players walk on stage and shake hands. But really, you're talking about 15, 20, 25 players. After that, Literally everybody is just watching it on a screen. And the people in those seats are generally corporate partners, sponsors. It's not everyday fans like you and me. Somehow the draft has become a behemoth. And so we want to dive in and find out how and why. Doug Greenberg has been covering the draft for front office sports. And so he's going to give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain about how the draft has become so big. Let's go deep. Doug, first and foremost, I want to set the stage for our audience. How drastically 
has the draft changed over the years from its inception to the mega event it has become now? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, my colleague, Michael McCarthy, and I, we uh, we looked into this over the last week um, or, you know, the last two weeks or so. And uh, the legend, the, the legendary story, as uh, people from ESPN have told me, is that, um, you know, the draft was just a bunch of NFL execs sitting around in a room, right? Short sleeve T-shirts, smoke filled room, uh, all those kind of stereotypes and ESPN in their early days were looking for programming. They, uh, I think I, I talked to Mel Kiper Jr. And he said, yeah, in those early days, we would go from our coverage of the draft to like cover of coverage of like a tractor race or something like that. Um, so ESPN really needed programming and they, you know, I think the draft was the only thing related to the NFL that they could get their hands on in those days. Um, so they went to the league office. They said, can you, you know, will you let us broadcast the draft? And and the interesting part is that um, Pete Rozelle, who was the commissioner at the time, he was like, no, originally. Uh, the owners were all very resistant to it. They were like, there's nothing here to show. Maybe they didn't want people invading on their space, that kind of thing. Um, but ESPN persisted. Um, eventually, Pete Rozelle gave in. And ESPN just started uh, broadcasting the draft, started really simple, just in a hotel ballroom. Um, then they started, you know, a little bit each year, just started building it up, building it up. And, you know, here we are 44 years later, and now they're traveling around the country. Uh, we've been calling it the traveling circus um, of them just uh, of them building up this crazy event that's not only appealing on TV, it's appealing to spectators in person. And, you know, it's just kind of been a gradual build over time. Um, you know, no, pretty simple as that. Um ESPN wanting to build it up. And as it got more popular on TV, the NFL got more invested. Um, and that's just kind of how it became this, this giant spectacle, um, just slowly but surely. Well, it's been modeled and copied in other sports. The MLS calls their draft a super draft. It, it really, you know, has grown bigger than just the NFL. But in the case of the NFL, ESPN, along with now the NFL Network, have had a vice grip on the ability to broadcast it, which is uh, a, a bit different. You know, why have they been allowed that level of sole ownership, and why is it important to them? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and to your first point, um, you're right. Like the idea of drafts being a big deal is pretty much only because of the NFL. Um, you know, the NBA draft is is huge too, and this year's NBA draft is going to be wild. Um, you know, with Victor Wembanyama and it's a really good draft class, and it's going to be super exciting. Um, but that's all thanks to, you know, NFL and ESPN. And, um, you know, I don't know for sure why ESPN has has held on to this for so long. Um, I don't have an exact answer on that. But honestly, I just think it's the relationship that they have. And and if I had to guess, I think it's that the NFL in some ways feels indebted to ESPN for building up the draft. You know, again, this was sort of ESPN's thing from the get-go. And people I talked to there said like they really take ownership of it. Um, you know, one of the the main producers I talked to basically said like he was very passionate about it and said like, you know, this is our event. We've we've pioneered we pioneered it. We've been building on it every year. We really know how to do it. Um, you know, we feel like this is our like this is our event. Nobody can take it away from us. Except obviously, you know, as you said, NFL Network has come in. Um and it makes sense. They're, you know, the NFL's media arm. Um makes sense that they would have some rights to it. But, you know, ESPN has, I don't think they've gotten complacent about it at all. That's part of the reason why they've, they've kept with it too. Um, you know, they now have the separate broadcasts on ESPN and ABC. The ABC broadcast is a little bit more focused on um, college is like the college perspective. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's just sort of what it comes down to is just, um, you know, the, that ownership of the event and, and, you know, when Fox tried to come in a few years ago and take some ownership of the event, um, ESPN like was very defensive about it and they almost like put in double the effort. And that's almost kind of how we ended up with the ABC broadcast, um, because they wanted to show that they had enough to just broadcast it themselves. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I just think it's, you know, not, not trying to, you know, pump up ESPN too much, but you know, they do a good job with that coverage. It's been their event from the start. Um, and, and, you know, the NFL, I think owes them a little bit. Well, you talk about pumping up the coverage. 
I would argue it is much more difficult of a broadcast than, say, a live event in terms of a game. In a game, you're going to have plays, you're going to have replays. If it's a Super Bowl, you got a halftime show. Essentially, the draft is you making a conference call interesting. What did you learn about the level of production that goes into making the draft compelling uh, to watch in a way that it's part information, certainly, but it's also part reality TV in a way? Yep. You, no, you're absolutely right. Um, it's that's, you know, it, you're you're essentially trying you, you're saying it's a conference call. That's completely correct. Um, it's basically just guys coming up to a podium reading names. That is the only action that actually happens at this event. Um, so they have so much time to fill in between all of these picks. And, you know, if you ask me, sometimes I think it's too much time. Uh, <laughs> I think the time between I think it could move a little bit faster. Um, but you know what? They're they're trying to get as much advertising dollars out of this, you know, have the first round on its own one night, have the next two rounds the next day and then finish it off the day after um, spread it out over three days, you know, really make a spectacle out of it. And yeah, um, from that technical perspective, you know, they just have they have so much that goes into this. And this was another really big point of pride um, from the from the producers I talked to, you know, they have over seven or sorry over 600 edited video packages um you know highlight packages that kind of thing 400 graphics packages they've got remote live shots all over the country um they got cameras in all 32 team draft rooms so they've the resources that they've committed to this i believe they have i think they have 50 cameras um on site this year in kansas city as well um they've committed so many resources to yeah to filling all that dead air between each of the 10 seconds that it takes for the commissioner or whoever it is at the podium uh, to read off the names. And and so making the draft interesting uh, for all that time is, you know, it certainly seems like it's a challenge, but it's something that they've been doing for so long. And um, a big part of that comes back to the analysts as well. Um, people love Mel Kuyper Jr. People love Todd McShay, um, all those kind of guys, Daniel Jeremiah on NFL Network. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, just, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's kind of almost like a microcosm of the NFL product, right? Like the NFL, each play takes, you know, average play is what, like five seconds long or something like that. And the whole rest of the game is just building stuff around it. Um, so it's almost like they figured out how to do that at an event that could be even more boring. Um, and it's, and it's really impressive when you think about it and they get this many, you know, they get over 10 million people to tune into the lot first round every year. Well, they get people to tune in, but they also now get people to get on a plane and show up. It was one thing when the draft was every year at Radio City Music Hall in New York, and, you know, we would have the shots of Jets fans being upset, whoever they picked. Now, and I was at the draft last year in Las Vegas, it takes over a town, and you have people flying in from all over the country to watch a conference call on a screen. I, 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 it's, I, I was lost for words when I saw it up close and personal, the amount of activations, the amount of events and concerts all around this made up event. What comes to mind for you? Because that aspect of it is I believe, unique to the NFL in relation to uh, other drafts. But in a way, it is them kind of figuring out ways to continue to own the sports calendar throughout the year? Yeah, I mean, people are people are crazy about the NFL, right? Um, you know, it's people just get completely insane about it. Uh, the fans, you know, it's 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 got a hold on fans like no one else. Um, that's something we've been starting to look into, too, is this, like I said, the, the traveling roadshow aspect of this thing. Um, taking it on the road outside of Radio City Music Hall, which, yeah, like you said, had its own allure. Um, the Jets fans made made a name for themselves um, by being kind of crazy. But um, taking it on the road has been really, really interesting and, and giving a lot of these cities the opportunity to um, put on to put on a show for the NFL. And in particular, one thing we've noticed is, you know, with the with the exception of Las Vegas um, and and a couple other places where they've had it, 
you'll notice that most of these cities are places that cannot host a Super Bowl um, because it's too cold. And, you know, you know, you talk about Cleveland, you talk about Kansas City this year. Um, they're going to announce where it's going to be um, either next, in, in the future. And I've heard that Green Bay um, is, is going to be a, a strong candidate for it. And these are all places that can't host the Super Bowl. So they don't get to have a big, um, you know, NFL event, right? Like, or the biggest NFL event. So they sort of settle as this for this as like almost a consolation prize. Um, and it's huge. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people show up for this thing every year. Um, as you said, people get on a plane to, to go watch this thing. And for, and for nothing else, it's just like, it's, it's the environment, right? Um, you know, NFL fans create this like, almost like party atmosphere. And I think also, um, every year the, you know, each city is trying to one up the, the last one, uh, Kansas city obviously has its hands full trying to one up Las Vegas, um, who was one up in Cleveland, who had it during a COVID year. Um, but I think all these cities want to prove that like, Hey, we're like, you know, we can handle a big NFL event, even if, you know, it's logistically impossible for Kansas city or Cleveland, um, or green Bay to host a super bowl. They, they want those NFL fans coming in and they want them to, uh, they, they want to show the NFL that they can really host this kind of big event and make the most of it when they get that opportunity. It's a really interesting aspect in terms of those cold water, th those cold temperature cities having uh, a shot at hosting something big. I know Jerome Bettis loved the fact that the Super Bowl was in Detroit, but it, I think everyone would love for them to continue to be in warm climates, and obviously the same would be true for the Pro Bowl. Lastly, before I let you go, you know, you're looking at these types of stories across sports and how these leagues intersect with business for real growth opportunities and, you know, unique uh, consumers. What do you think might be next? What do you think the evolution of this uh, looks like? Could we see an overseas draft? Are there some areas where they could push the envelope even more? What, what do you expect to see in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, yeah, with the NFL, like nothing is out of the question. Um, they have... They've talked about putting an entire team in London, um, you know, and overseas. They've talked about having an, an entire overseas division, which, you know, I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I think that it might be getting a little bit too far off base. However, having something like the draft um, in a place like London, in a place like, let's say, Germany, for example, where I know that um, the games in Germany have done very well. Um, there's a lot of NFL fans there. Uh, there's a lot of NFL fans in, in England. Yeah, an overseas draft, I, I think, could be totally possible. Um, you know, it's Las Vegas is an NFL city. They've already had the draft there. Um, you know, I, I think maybe even having it in a place that's not even an NFL city necessarily could happen, um, but just known as a party place. Um, yeah. <laughs> just thinking of, like, southern party cities, for example. Um, like, I could see... Um, you know, like Austin, Texas, for example, like Austin, Texas is a great place and people love that. And maybe just making it like a destination kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that could extend uh, up to Canada where you guys are as well. Um, there's a pretty big NFL following up there. Uh, maybe do some kind of collaboration with the CFL. Um, I, I think the, you know, I think the NFL has proven that this is a, that this is a worthy event. You know, I didn't even touch on the reality TV aspect of it, the, the emotions that go into everything. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's all, uh, it's all valid. And I think that there's, you know, the, the sky's the limit for the NFL when it comes to the draft. Yeah, no question. L love the thought of Canada throwing their hat in the ring, maybe draft in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. Uh, but be, it'll be real interesting to see how, uh, it evolves over time. Maybe with the ABC collab, uh, they can get Jesse Palmer handing out roses like he's on The Bachelor um, because it is uh, reality TV. As uh, it continues to evolve, we'll continue to check in uh, with it, your coverage on it. Thank you so much. All right, Dom. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. You can find more great reporting with all of those nuggets and more from Doug Greenberg. One, give him a follow at Doug Greenberg on Twitter. But he's got a great story about the draft that we will put in the show notes to this podcast, but you can find on Front Office Sports.
While you're on Twitter, give our first guest, Emery Hunt, a follow as well. At Football Game Plan is the handle. At F-B-A-L-L Game Plan is how you can find him on Twitter. You can find us right here in your podcast feed, giving you episodes every week on the things in sports that are related to everything that's going on in our world outside of sports. Thanks for listening.